Hey everyone, it's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Today on the show, we've got a good friend of mine and the managing partner and founder of one of the top sales training firms in, at least in North America, if not the world. It's called Sassy Sales Management. His name is Matt Cameron. He's going to be talking to us about how to manage remote teams internationally, how to run an effective one-on-one, what the number one reason that most sales processes fail, and also how to think about managing your own career and using the metaphor of yachting to do that. So it's a great conversation. It's an authentic conversation, and, and I enjoy it. Before we get there, we want to thank our sponsor, Sponsors Outreach. Outreach supports sales reps by enabling them to humanize communications at scale. From automating the soul-sucking manual work that eats up selling time to providing action-oriented tips on what communications are working best, Outreach has your back. I don't have anything else to say right now. It's Sam Jacobs. It's the Sales Hacker Podcast. Let's listen to this interview with Matt Cameron, and I hope you're doing well. Hey, everybody. It's Sam Jacobs. Welcome back to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We are delighted today to have on the show a good friend and one of the thought leaders and the key kind of trainers, consultants, experts in the high growth ecosystem, Matt Cameron. And let me tell you a little bit about Matt. He's the founder and managing partner at Sassy Sales Management, which runs in-person public and private workshops to teach go-to-market SaaS leaders how to produce the best outcome for their company and their people. Matt's a New Zealander by birth, an Australian by accent, an adopted American. He's worked at Salesforce, Yammer, acquired by Microsoft, among a bunch of other places. He started a bunch of different companies. He's really an interesting and fascinating and brilliant guy. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Sarah, I'm looking forward to the chat. Great to be here. We're glad to have you. And for those that are that are out there in the world, the first conversation we had, which was which was fascinating and wonderful, was actually deleted by our podcasting software. So this is the second time we're having the chat. Matt, are you more or less excited the second time we're having this conversation? I'm more excited because I've got a better sounding microphone. And from what I'm told, most of my value comes from my accent. So I'm ready to rock it. <laughs> awesome. Well, well we're, we're glad to have you here. So the first place we start is your baseball card, which is a fancy way of saying, who is Matt Cameron? So let's give you an opportunity to sell us some sassy sales management. What is sassy sales management? Tell us what you do, who your ICP is, all that other good stuff. Sure thing. So Sassy was born about four years ago after I'd spent about 20 years uh, working in tech. I've been in SaaS since 2005 when I joined Salesforce. And one of the biggest challenges I had as a hiring and leading manager was finding ways to enable and train my people in a way that was relevant. You know, in SaaS, we're doing things at the leading edge. We were the first industry vertical, I think, to specialize our roles, things like sales development. We're always using the latest technology. So, uh, automation tools, AI, those sorts of things. And the training that was out there was really old school. And so what we do is we work exclusively with SaaS companies so that we have a common vernacular, common experience, and we work with the go-to-market leaders. So sales operations, enablement, sales management, SDR management, et cetera, in small format workshops where we spend a couple of days drinking through a fire hose. And then we spend some months after that in a collegiate environment supporting each other, the vast majority of whom end up, I hope, through referral, ending up in the revenue collective where they get peer support ongoing. (laughs) Well, thank you for uh, plugging uh, Revenue Collective in that answer. How did you figure out how to train people? I mean, I think maybe that sounds sort of obvious, but I know you put so much work into developing these courses. 
at what point do you know that a course is done? What are the key elements of your training and certification programs? And, and how do you go about doing it? Sure. Well, back in 2004 was when the first time I started thinking about this sort of thing when a friend and I actually had a vocational training college for sports people um, spun up. So I spent you know, a year of my life working with the Australian government getting a, uh, a training facility uh, accredited. And in that time, again, fire hose type stuff, I learned about uh, programmatic creation of building block courses um, that were modularized and uh, focusing on learning outcomes. And so when I put this together, I, I brought in some adult learning and instructional design experts. My primary partner in the business is Misha McPherson, who many of you will have heard of, who's a, a sales enablement thought leader. Um, and then we went out to peers of mine for the sales management program and said, look, in your, in your world, in your observation, where are people struggling? Where, where are the, the sticking points for your newest managers and, and what are you trying to do to solve for that? And then uh, I call them my fellows, sort of my, my, my board of advisors, as it were, formally, uh, to create the, the, the guts of our curriculum. And then the way we certify people is they go online afterwards and have to prove that they've implemented what we taught them. A specific example would be we teach them the framework, best practice frameworks for building a one-on-one, -on -one, and then they upload the actual agenda with links to the actual reports that they've created to run their one-on-ones. And I think it must be pretty rigorous because only about 30% of our alumni actually get fully through certification because it's, 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 it's easy, right? Oh, sorry, sorry, it's simple, but not easy because you've got to make the time to do it. And the reality is the people that certify, they're the ones I want because they're the ones that are disciplined, uh, process-oriented, and know that they can't just be there closing deals on behalf of reps and think that they're going to scale an organization. One of the things that you talk about is is how some people, many people are, to your point of this one-on-one -on -one example, folks aren't doing the one-on-ones right. So walk us through, first of all, define one-on-one because -on -one, there's probably a few people out there that don't know what we're talking about, even though perhaps they should. But also walk us through like the industry standard for what a bad one-on-one -on -one is versus what you teach and practice and what a good one-on-one -on -one is, particularly for you know a frontline sales manager. Yeah, I'm all about context. So let's stick with the frontline sales manager for a moment, an AE manager, because it's different by function. But the, the typical one, that one I grew up with, I'm suspecting you grew up with, was uh, you turn up once a week with your boss and they'll do one of two things. They'll either take you for a coffee, walk around the block and have a chat and be your friend and ask you how you're doing and how they can help and you know let me know if there's anything I can do. Or slightly better, you'll sit down and they'll say, so Matt, uh, what's going on? what's in your pipe. And they'll spend most of their time talking about the deals that are in front of them that are going to close this week, this month, this quarter. And that's their focus. The manager feels great about it because they've, quote, added value, helped you close deals, and away you go. And they're absolutely not supporting you in either your development areas, because they don't know what the heck they should be, um, or in managing your business, which is really what they should be doing. In a one-on-one, -on -one, it's not our time to be doing deep dives into specific deals. And I'm, I'm, I can say that both for enterprise businesses and transactional businesses. My perspective and the, and the philosophy of SASE is that there are five areas for best practice one-on-one. -on -one, and they, it requires you to prepare as a manager. And the vast majority of managers expect the rep to turn up prepared and they do nothing because they're too busy. And a good manager 
has a standard set of reports and a templated approach to their agenda that has five areas. The first is, do we understand and believe the forecast? Like, is there is there a bottoms-up support for the number that the reps are forecasting? If not, let's have a chat about that. Second area is, are they doing the right thing? So activity-based reporting to see um, how they're spending their time. The next is, if they're spending their time appropriately, is it effective? Where are they getting stuck? Are they good at opening their doors? Are they good at progressing the deals? Can they close? Can they negotiate? Can they get access to stakeholders they need to? Those sorts of things. Then it's motivating reps uh, to give their best. And then lastly, removing obstacles. What can I do to help? And if you take that basic framework, you can apply it to any uh, context. The, rep- the activity inspection, though, of course, will be different. And when you speak to a rep who's been to one of those meetings when the manager turns up prepped and says, hey, Matt, today I think it's important that we focus on A, B, and C, and I'm observing this trend, and I'd like to chat it through with you and see what your perspective is, it blows their mind because that's not the usual one-on-one. I love that. When you're testing for effectiveness, you mentioned, you know, where are they getting stuck in terms of their skills capabilities? Is it all self-reported? Is it just the rep saying, I don't think I'm good at this? Or do you have objective uh, mechanisms or frameworks to define or to test where people are, regardless of where they think their problems are? Well, the beauty of it is, uh, unlike when uh, you started selling, uh, when we were adding things up with Abacus's Sam, uh, <laughs> we have these amazing, amazing new tools now. So, you know, I, I the first thing is our, our ability to automatically ingest activity data is so much better. There are so many great tools out there now that mean we're not relying on reps to update the, you know, making sure the calendar appointments are never. We can see... Uh, what they're doing, when they're doing it. And then we can compare that al- almost automatically to our methodology. So for example, I don't need a rep to tell me uh, that they have engaged with more than four stakeholders of XYZ titles um, in a certain deal. I can see it. It's reportable. I can I can see that this deal's at stage three and we've only engaged these two people in any sort of meaningful fashion. So I can have that conversation. I also, using fantastic conversational intelligence tools they have, which I never had, record it'll tell me that there are five deals this rep's working on where there has not been a, fi- a price discussion and we're at stage two, uh, which in our methodology is not correct. So, uh, if you have a strong sales operations function, there's no need for reps to come with self-reported issues, although we expect them to do so. The reason why we mustn't rely on that is one, I might not have the, I not, might not feel the psychological safety as a rep or my personality might not mean that I'm going to be confident in bringing to the table issues I'm observing. But secondly, most, most reps have areas where they're unconsciously incompetent. They don't know. That, the, that that's the reason they're struggling. And I'll give you a specific example. If a rep's losing deals at late stage uh, and they're getting surprised by it, oftentimes people focus on their negotiation skills. But actually, it was weak discovery. They didn't, at the beginning, they didn't lay the foundation of a strong deal by identifying real pain and a reason for doing something and attaching it to business value. So by the time they got to stage four and lost the deal on quote, quote, price, uh, it was actually a discovery issue. It's my hypothesis that almost all sales failures or lost deals are due to poor discovery. Would you agree with that or disagree with that? I would validate that through years of evidence. 
I completely agree. <laughs> I love it when people agree with me that that affirmatively. It's very empowering. Uh, I probably won't have any. <laughs> so, why are you such an expert? Who do you think you are, Matt? And what I mean by that is, let's tell us a little bit about how we got here in your life story. You've been part of an acquisition. You've been part of you know the early days of the most famous cloud SaaS software business in the world. How did you get into sales in the first place? And tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I got pushed into sales. Uh, I was a kid that used to uh, play with computer hardware back in the days when the the XT was a thing where most computers didn't have hard drives. So my hard drive was actually a full height hard drive that sat in a uh, lunchbox, like a plastic lunchbox you'd take to school (laughs) that I'd wired up to my computer. And that led me to believe, erroneously, uh, that I'd be a good computer engineer. So I studied that for a couple of years, and then during my part-time job at IBM, one day, my uh, sage boss said to me, Matt, you're not a very good technician, and you talk a lot. You should do marketing. <laughs> marketing. <laughs> marketing. Uh, it was a Kiwi, actually. Sorry, a New Zealander. So he probably would have said marketing. marketing. Uh, so anyway, I went, I went and did that. And- yes. Exactly. I went and did that and um, went to work for Hewlett Packard, who'd started at what they called a seed program, where they took people out of university for a year and then threw them back into university after they'd done a marketing, uh, basically an internship that was paid. And halfway through that year, I kept observing these guys running around with cell phones that no one had at the time and expense accounts and getting to talk to people all day, as opposed to me um, dealing with uh, PDFs and creating marketing collateral. I thought, I want to do that. So that's what got me into sales. I didn't go back to university. I, I, I don't have a, an undergraduate degree. I actually went on and did postgrad finance, but um, I got sucked into earning money uh, early on. Um, I can tell you my first job was $21,000 a year at 21. My next job at 22 was $60,000. And I thought, this is, this is ridiculous. So I'm like, okay, let's keep doing this. Uh, so yeah. So anyway, <laughs> yes? No, what were you going to say? I was going to say, yeah, that it was traditional IT. So most of the folks that we know in SaaS didn't come from this. So I ended up working for um, that channel. So distributing hardware, um, memory, uh, RAM, that sort of carry on storage, then worked for a systems integrator, ended up working for electronic data systems, uh, which became Hewlett Packard. Packard Enterprise. And what I'm pleased about with that experience is that I always wanted to sell to enterprise. And if you work for a 300,000 person company, you can see from the inside how hard it is to get things approved, um, influences, politics, and all that good stuff. So that was a great experience. Um, I'm really pleased for it. Uh, and that took me up to the year of 2000 where I moved to Australia and spent four years doing large bid, large bid management and process consulting because for the last prior couple of years, I've been doing deals where I had three opportunities to chase for two years, each of them worth more than 20 million bucks. So very, very high stakes, working with large bid teams, like 12 to 14 people dedicated to my bid. So you really had to, you had to win one, otherwise you're in trouble. And that was business process outsourcing, right? That you would say, you're doing this, it's costing you X, we can do the same thing for less. Let us do that for you. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. And the fun thing about that was that, you know, imagine I'm, if I'm going to do that, we had to negotiate with unions, HR, finance. And here I am at 26 years of age in the middle of that pretending I'm 40. And I think it was a really, really valuable experience for a young guy uh, to figure out how the world works because it wasn't just selling some software. It was the human factor that went with it. And meanwhile, if I'm not mistaken from the notes that you sent me, you're also the Australian kickboxing champion for your weight class. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, the, the backstory is I was a kid who uh, was picked on a lot because I moved around a lot. I was born in New Zealand, but before I was uh, 11, I lived in the United States, Malaysia, and Australia. And so moving around schools, you had to f- sort of, you had to look after yourself. So I ended up doing karate from the age of 11, um, got into um, uh, kickboxing and I, I did, I just had a, a niche I needed to scratch. So after at 27, I moved to Australia, I was on a strong professional path. I thought, you know what, I'm going to take four years out and just see what I can do. So I ended up consulting to uh, Kingston. Do you remember Kingston Technology? The, 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 I do not. Okay. They, they, the, the first company to ever do third-party memories, IBM, um, you know, they, they would put their much cheaper memory into IBM. They did very, very well, and Dell and everyone else. I consulted to them in Australia, worked about 20 hours a week. And the rest of the time I was training. So for five years almost, I, I was pretty much semi-professional kickboxer and ended up being at 200 pounds, the Australian amateur kickboxing champion, which actually taught me a lot of good lessons that I took into enterprise sales in the years subsequently. It was not long after that that I met Salesforce. What are, what are some of the lessons that you took from it? So two things, the two things I always tell people about. Number one is I used to have this anxiety and paranoia that every minute I was resting, my component and my opponent was training. And if you think about that, if I'm doing large deals and enterprise, nothing, I, I never feel like it's finished. And if I can do a better job on the proposal, I can do a little bit more research. I can spend more time building relationships. I just have this paranoia that if I'm not doing it, someone else is doing it. So that was very helpful. I always, so that kept me high velocity in terms of my energy levels. And the second thing was, I always assume I'm losing until I win. And it's not that I don't think I'm going to win. Uh, You get in a ring with some guy, you've got to believe you're going to win. Otherwise, you get scared and run away. But you leave it all on the mat. And what that meant was for me, chasing deals at Salesforce and, and, and whatnot, it meant that the hours were put in right? If I lose a deal, it's not because I didn't give it everything I've got. It's because I wasn't good enough. It's okay to lose a deal if you're not good enough. It's not okay to lose a deal if you didn't put in the effort. I would agree with that. However, do you feel like your mindset of every moment that you're resting, your opponent is training, the work is never done, has that impacted your ability to find peace and happiness in the rest of your life? A hundred percent. Yep. So, so, um, uh, I'm remarried, so I'm really good at it. Yeah. If you need marriage advice, (laughs) well, is this your second or your third? Yeah. So, um, second's okay. Yeah. Third is when, (laughs) third is when, and even then it's okay. I mean, who knows, you know, the world is much more fluid than it used to be. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, when I did the biggest deal I'd ever done, which at the time was the largest for the quarter at Salesforce, it was a, a telecom deal back in 2006. I was filling out RFP stuff in the hospital as I was waiting for my daughter to be born. And it's a cliche to say it, but um, we, we can make more money. We can't make more time. So uh, as I got older, I realized this. And so now I, I just decide how much is enough. And so I have some different practices now. I, I put boundaries around my time and I would encourage everybody, regardless of career they're in, to figure out how to get a meditation practice because that that's changed my life. I do it every day. Uh, just 15, oh, wow. 15 or 20 minutes, depending on how I'm feeling. It's not long, but if I don't do it, I'm a different person by the afternoon. Did you do it today? Absolutely, I did. And the way I cheat, I use... Um, Headspace? I, 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 yeah, I still use Headspace. I, I don't need to. That's not cheating. What are you talking about? Why do you well, say that's cheating? I don't, I, I don't know. I feel like guided meditation for some for someone who's doing it for several years as I have. I don't know if that's necessary, but I just like it. Um, it's a routine I'm in, and uh, that's what I do. 
Well, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad that you evolved uh, to the place and I'm glad that you found meditation and, and happiness. I'm, I sincerely am because filling out RFPs while your daughter's being born, that sounds, that does sound like it could be challenging. Yeah. That's nuts. That's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so you worked at Salesforce in the early 2000s, if I'm not mistaken, and you worked at Yammer before they were acquired by Microsoft. What was Salesforce like back then? And, and what did you take from, I, I would imagine they were like, you know, small for them, but big for most startups, but then still going through a period of hyper growth. What were your main takeaways and conclusions from being, and I think you were promoted rapidly. So like moving up through the ranks at such an important company at the time that it was becoming important. Well, something I, I found at Salesforce and I see to be um, universally true today is the best companies, the ones that really do it, they concentrate talent. And so at that time, there was a guy called Jim Steele, who many folks will know, who's over at Yext now, who just brings his squad with him wherever he goes. And they have their way of working. There's trust, um, there's empathy, uh, and there's uh, a focus on execution. And so what it was like back then was zero tolerance for um, not doing what you say you're going to do. And uh, everybody having an extremely high bar. So early on, um, what I learned was uh, treat it like a high-performance team. Know that every single year you could, you may not make the cut. If there's someone better to be on the team, they'll be on the team. So you have to earn your place every year. And some would argue every quarter, but I don't know if it's that extreme. Culture, 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 culture. Uh, they did an incredibly good job of bonding us across departments, across geographies through their volunteering program. And I've taken that everywhere I've gone since. Uh, I think Benioff's a genius uh, with respect to that. And um, it doesn't matter how big the organization is, if you can find a way to bond people through giving um, and, and in philanthropy, you're going to have a better experience for everybody and you will attract the right talent. The last thing that I, I have to say I'm a little bit torn with, early on, there was such a hard driving culture that some there was certain leadership there that would strip away the niceties during reviews and didn't really care how you felt about the review or the conversation that was going on. And the reason I'm a little bit struggling, that's not my style, but if I observe where those people have been and where they are now, they keep winning, like those companies keep winning. And what I mean, I'll give you a specific example, be on a conference call across region, give a forecast, and then somebody get torn to shreds in front of everybody else. For some reason, people wouldn't leave. They would take that and they would lift their game. But if you listen to common wisdom, or whatever else, you wouldn't run a business like that. But I can't argue with the outcomes. You know, they did really well. Well, I don't think there's one way to be successful. I think there's multiple ways. And that's why it's so important that you stay true to yourself. Uh, you've said, I, I think, you know, integrity is, is super important to you. Comment, just give us some sense of, of why it's so important. You've mentioned to me doing the right thing is always the right thing. I'd love to hear some examples where that's been put into practice over the course of your career. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been in several um, Silicon Valley startups where you, and, 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 I, and, I, and I know many examples of this, where, where uh, senior executives, including the CEOs, will say whatever they need to say to get the outcome they're looking for, be it fundraising, hiring, new customers, and, what, uh, and whatnot. And I've been put in a situation personally a couple of times where I could toe the line 
and and just you know tuck in behind whatever is being said or say no i can't be a part of that this is not true it doesn't represent uh, the way things should be and i'm proud of that and 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 um it means that you have longevity in this industry and you can sleep at night and i worry that some young folks get coerced or bullied or pushed into aligning with views that they don't agree with or behaviors that they don't want to accept around misrepresenting capability or situations or covering over bad behavior. I hear you. I understand. And I agree with you. One of the questions I have to the point of being on that conference call, multi-region and being ripped to shreds is so many companies start in one region. They want to expand. Sometimes they start in Tel Aviv and they want to go to Europe. Sometimes they start in Europe and want to go to the U.S. Sometimes they start in the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. You've been on many sides of those multi-matrixed reporting lines and international organizations. Tell us, as a, if I'm a small company listening to this right now, we're building an office in London or, or Buenos Aires or wherever, Sydney, and, uh, and, and this is our first time. What are the key mistakes? What are the key things we should be mindful of as we look to expand internationally and into new regions? The formula for success that, that, that I think is consistent is you have to take someone from HQ, put them in region for some period of time. I don't think there's a golden rule, but uh, oftentimes I say six months or a year as a tour of duty to be the feet on the ground that helps hire and ingest new people in a way that's consistent with company culture and gets them up to speed quickly. The thing that I see consistently fail is that people think they're going to go and hire a big name in region who has all the relationships and that they're going to be successful. I see that fail all the time. Companies like Salesforce did this very well. What they would typically do is they'd send a sales leader and a marketing leader. Off they go closely followed by a customer success person when you've got some revenue coming in to support it. And I see IPAT and recognition here, and I see this from the US to uh, EMEA, vice versa, APAC. So that's, that's what I think is critical. Um, and typically it's a person who's on the rise and, and a sort of a, um, a cost or an investment that they make in their own career is to do the tour of duty, make their mark by spinning up a new region, and then coming back to HQ and picking up perhaps an area vice president role or a more senior senior role. For very, very small companies, typically it has to be the founder. And I know about this because I see a lot of New Zealand, Australia companies trying to break into the US. And if you have any chance of making it at all, you need the founder here. If you know, you're a less than 20, 30 person company, the founder's got to get over here and kick things off. Build the relationships they need and make sure things are set up correctly. So if the founder listens to this and says, I hear you, Matt, but I need to be where my engineering team is and my engineering team is where our headquarters are. I just don't think I can go off to the new region and live there for six to 12 months. What's your response to that? I think you can struggle. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think you need a strong number two who looks after engineering and you need to be okay with getting up late hours at night. And, you know, there are, there are dozens of examples. Well, let's, you know, point to GitLab, which says you don't need to physically be in the same office to make an engineering team successful, not with today's technology. I agree with you. I like it. Another common question on this specific topic, and then we can, we can move on to other things, but reporting lines. So 
I don't know that there's a perfect answer to this, but a lot of companies. So one one idea is there's a global function, and all the functional managers, to the extent that they exist in region, report up through the function. So the marketing lead in EMEA reports to the CMO, who is based in New York, or vice versa. The other arrangement, and so and so, yes, there might be like an office manager or a general manager in the London office, but uh, that is sort of a dotted line report, but not the official manager of the marketing manager that is in EMEA. The other structure is, of course, regional, where, and I'm sure there maybe are many structures, but the other structure would be regional, where there's an office manager or the head of office or the general manager in EMEA, using this same example, and all of the people in that office report up through that general manager, and that's so that they can get management guidance advice obstacles unblocked in real time in their in their time zone and then they have a dotted line relationship to the functional head that is somewhere else just to make sure that their practices are roughly consistent with the general practices of the team what's your preference that is a tough one i have observed that usually that regional head is a uh, a revenue focused head. Usually, it's a VP of sales type person who ends up being the titular head of the region. And I think that there's no, I don't think I have a preference. I think it depends on the on the people that are in play and the way you can structure the go to market. So, for example, I've seen situations where you've got quite bifurcated segments in region. So you have your um, you know, SM, small to medium-sized businesses and you have enterprise near the twain shall meet and you've got to have got pods, if you want to term it that way, of people that focus on that. And then they all roll up to someone who's responsible for regional revenue and then dotted line offshore, for, as you described. And I've seen it the other way where it's actually more like hard line offshore and dotted line internal. And I've spent most of my time in that situation where your boss is in HQ and then you have weekly get-togethers with the uh, regional heads to make sure we're aligned and everyone's being supported and that we can represent a, uh, a common front to HQ for the resources that we need. So I, I don't know if I've got a strong answer for you. Uh, I will say though this, I'm not a fan at all of having different operating models around the world. I think we need to operate homogeneously. And the most, the biggest thing you can have is the us and them thing as, as you know, France decides that, you know, the US are being a-holes and they sort of create friction that way. That's a thing we're trying to avoid. Yeah. Very relevant uh, example there. Let's talk about, you know, your career and personal brand development, because you just mentioned you didn't graduate from undergrad, by the way. Um, one of our recent guests, Angus Davis, who started a company called Upserve and Tell Me Networks and sold the latter to Microsoft and the former to, uh, to Vista Equity Partners, also didn't graduate from, from undergrad. So you're in good company, at least on the Sales Hacker podcast. But how do you think about how, how did you become known? You know, what is your advice for I'm a young person listening? I don't you know, this concept of career can be can be overwhelming to think about. All I know is that I was just hired to be an SDR at XYZ company and I don't really like it. What is your advice for people as they're setting off on their career journey in terms of how to navigate their career, manage their career in the spirit of maybe hopefully one day ending up like you, which is the owner of a successful business where you can, you know, you can chart your own course and you've built uh, hopefully a nest egg and financial independence, and you're also making impactful decisions and helping people. What are your pieces of advice for people that, that want to follow in your footsteps? 
uh, be narrow and focused in terms of what you're going to be five percent at. Like, what are you going to be absolutely excellent at, and stick a time frame on it for recognition. I'll give you a specific example. So, in 2010, I came to the states and I said, my objective within five years is to be considered a thought leader in B2B sales in Silicon Valley, which if you think about it now, a kid from New Zealand, not particularly well known for our thought leaders in this area, um, was a uphill challenge. And so what I did that I think is a pattern I see work time and time again was state the goal and then figure out what it means, quantify it. It means that you're invited to speak here, here, and here to write articles on this, that, and the other. And then I thought, well, how do I do that? Well, I need to get known by the people that can support me in that endeavor. So when I came to the States, I set myself a weekly objective of in-person live meetings, people I could actually shake a hand with. And the way I did it was I went to meet, this is before um, the Revenue Collective, before Sales Hacker, it was before MSP, there was nothing. It was just meetups and conferences. So I just went to everything and tried to meet people and help them. So, so the universal advice I can give you is this, find the communities that matter to your career, you, there's so many options out there now. Physically turn up as often as you can and make sure you're always helping people. Introductions, advice, whatever. Just be helping. But here's the, th here's the thing. You're going to meet hundreds of people. Have a system that allows you to remember who they are. And I'll give you a very tactical piece of advice. If you, if you use LinkedIn Sales Navigator, you can actually tag people. And I do tag people. I, I tag, you know, um, thought leaders in X. I put it, I have a tag for that. Uh, outstanding CSMs, content marketers, blah, blah, blah. And that when I'm looking for help later in my career, if I'm looking for the next job or if I'm looking for the next project, I can just look at all the people I tag and go, oh, yeah, she's fantastic at that. I'll ask her. She'll know. You don't have to use LinkedIn, but you need some sort of personal content management system so you don't lose the value of these people. And then secondly, on top of physically meeting people, start writing. Start writing. So I was programmatic about that. I was pretty early on in LinkedIn in terms of writing material and commenting and feedbacking. Everybody seems to know that now, but they're not all doing it. So start writing. And given any opportunity to speak anywhere, you should do it because it gives you a chance to practice and hone your craft and get recognized as somebody who knows what they're talking about. When, you know, you mentioned figure out what you want to be top 5% in. And, you know, if you, if you imagine that you sort of begin your career in your very early twenties, maybe 22, 23, 24, and maybe you're going to be working, you know, aggressively through maybe 60, 65, 70. It just depends, I guess. But most people would say, I, I'm happy to figure out what I want to be top 5% in math, but I, I don't know what that is. So how long do you think people have before they, they have to have an answer? I mean, it could be forever. But is there a, a heuristic, you know, because you mentioned 2010 and you were, I think, probably into your uh, into your 30s at that point. So is there a time frame when people, when you feel like, hey, set yourself an objective that you have to have an answer to what you want to do by this age? No. And, and I, I, think by, no, I think the answer actually is, um, for me, and again, I don't really believe in universal truths because there's always a different context. But for me, my truth is every five years, I usually shed my skin, Right. What does that mean? It means I do something somewhat t different, maybe completely tangential or or just different. So think about it as if as a yacht race. And the way I think about it is this: I started off life as a computer engineer who was sucked at it. Then, so I was heading in that direction. And then someone said marketing. So I took 
the foundation of computer engineering, added marketing to it, and became a really good technology salesperson because nobody could speak the language of technology like I could who was in the sales job. Because how many computer engineers can actually speak to humans in a way, you know, in sell? And not to disparage computer engineers, but um, you know, I mean, they don't want to be out there being gregarious necessarily. It's a rare profile of engineer. So what I say to you is, build off your foundations. Don't throw everything out and start again. You don't have to know what you're going to do in 20 years' time, but you can you can figure out what you're going to be really good at in five years' time. And if you want to differentiate, it's by combining one or two things. Maybe you've got a passion for a specific industry. And you can add technology to that. Or maybe you did an accounting undergraduate thing. You think accounting sucks, but I bet you you could be one of the top financial services product salespersons if you put your mind to it because you already know the glossary of terms and how it works. So I think about careers as being tax left, tax right, if you're thinking from yachting terms, and making sure that you combine some of your background, education, and experience in a way that's almost unique to you to get ahead. I like it. I love yachting terms as, you know, I haven't heard that metaphor before, but uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. We're, we're roughly at the end of our time together, Matt, and it's always good to know who your influences are, who are the people that impacted you and who, and it could be books that you've read. It could be anything, but what content, what ideas, let's not overuse the word content. What ideas do you think we should know about that have inspired you recently? (laughs) <laughs> That's a tough one, Sam. I, ideas that have inspired me. Um, I, I the, the things that get me inspired right now is the idea that I've always thought about life or careers as a portfolio of projects. And I think that modern life, modern working life can be thought of in that way. There's two things that I'm looking for. And I would advise to my young friends, I say, listen, spend your time on projects you enjoy rather than thinking about lifelong careers, find ones that allow you to take every opportunity for an enriching experience as you travel down the path. So when I was at Salesforce, I couldn't do that. You know, I was making over a million bucks a year, but that's all I was doing. And then now I look around and think, well, how many trips did I take? How many hobbies did I try? How many languages did I learn? Very few. So the thing I'd like people to think about is, how do I design a portfolio career that maximizes my opportunity for enriching experiences, be it through people, places, thing, uh, things to do? That's how I think about it. I like it. Matt, if, uh, if folks are listening and they want to get in touch with you because maybe they want to become a student in SASE sales management or hire you for, for their team, or they just want to, they just want to hear you hear some of more of your ideas. Uh, are you okay if they reach out to you? What's your preferred mechanism for it? Yeah, you'll find me on LinkedIn, Matt Cameron, and I think that's the easiest way to get in touch with me. I'm pretty responsive, and I'd look forward to uh, speaking to folks that care about B2B sales, SaaS, and uh, career development in general. Awesome. And it's Sassy Sales Management is the company. Matt, thanks so much for being on the Sales Hacker Podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Talk to you Friday for Friday Fundamentals. Hey everybody, it's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to Sam's Corner. Great interview with Matt Cameron, a really interesting guy, a unique guy, didn't graduate from undergrad, has started a bunch of his own businesses. We didn't talk about that on the show, but he has. Uh, One of the early employees at Salesforce was part of the Yammer acquisition when they sold to Microsoft and now has been doing his own business for a period of time and is doing incredibly well. And 
he has his own approach to how he builds his career, and he also has his own approach through SASE sales management on how they train frontline managers, sales enablement, sales operations, and all other kinds of people. They even have a, a VP level course for training how to be a first-time VP. Candidly, we get great feedback on SASE within Revenue Collective, and we hear that people really enjoy those courses. So it's something you may want to check out. But regardless, a couple things we talked about. One of them is just this concept of the one-on-one. -on -one. And the one-on-one -on -one is this weekly meeting that you should be having if you're a manager with, with the person that works for you, or if you're the, the direct report with your manager, where you're reviewing how you're performing. Now, Matt has a specific point of view that you know you should avoid the coffee talk, you should avoid the, the walk around the block, and you should probably avoid the uh, sitting down and just saying, what's up? I, I hear that. And, and Matt specifically focused on skill development and not just picking out a random deal within the pipeline, but really looking at the overall pipeline, the overall effectiveness, and using CRM to identify areas where uh, where you as the rep might need improvement or development. I think that's a really a, a good approach. The main thing I would take away, though, is that he, he, he said, you know, managers need to do the work themselves of coming to the one-on-one -on -one prepared. And that's something I really do believe in, that it can't just be on the rep to sort of show up and say, here's what I need help with. We need people to do a little bit of work to show that, A, that they care about the people that they work with, but also that they understand what's happening within their own business. So that's one takeaway. Another takeaway is just, listen, everything relates to discovery. The number one reason that reps fail is because of weak discovery. And Matt's got years and years of evidence to point out that if you're not doing the right things at the beginning of the sales process, inevitably you'll fail at the end of the sales process. Think that's that's worth remembering. Finally, I think, you know, just when it comes to your career, he mentioned this concept of a yachting metaphor, which is tacking in one direction and then tacking in another direction, but accumulating and compiling these skills along the way so that at some point in time, you can be the world's expert in this unique combination of skills that you developed. Matt talks about how he was an engineer and then he took on marketing to become an incredible kind of technology salesperson. He then took on the role of being his own business leader and really driving uh, his own business. And, and I think that's just, it's representative and emblematic of his willingness to dive in and learn new skills, as he said, shed his skin every five years. Uh, finally, he meditates every day. He talked about how he was filling out RFPs while his first wife was you know, in labor in the hospital. I, I do think that there's a lot of merit to working hard, but I do think that, um, and this is debatable, you know, there's a lot of debate out there in, in Silicon Valley about how hard people should work. I don't even know what work means, to be honest with you, because if we all have our mobile devices on us and if we're all generally connected all the time, then if I'm answering an email or a Slack and it's 10 p.m., am I working? If I'm thinking about work, is that working? That's a conversation I've had on Twitter. But the main point is you got to find time. I don't know that it's about work-life balance, but work-life integration, which is just a fancy way of saying there needs to be some time in your day that is not for anybody else but for yourself. Even if you're in a relationship, it's not for the relationship, it's for you, your mental health, your physical health. You need to take care of yourself and you need to love yourself enough to take care of yourself so that you can bring your best self to other relationships, whether they're personal or whether they're professional. So I hope you're finding time to do whatever it is that you need to do. And it doesn't have to be meditating and it doesn't have to be exercising. I mean, maybe for some people it's getting drunk every day. I, I, I don't want to comment on being overly prescriptive and being too new agey. The point is that there needs to be some period of time where it's about you. 
And then when you do that, you can bring the best of you to other people, whether that's a corporate organization or some other kind of relationship. So thanks for listening to the lecture. Uh, thanks to our sponsor, Outreach. Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams and empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth, as you know. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, you can. It's linkedin.com forward slash the word in forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. If you want to rate the show on iTunes, please give us a five. We're a rating, a rating, a rating right now is a 4.5, which unfortunately is not very good when it comes to the iTunes charts. So I guess there's some dissatisfied listeners out there and I apologize if I've offended you in any way, but if you're out there and you're listening and you want to give us a five and help us out, we would really appreciate it. Otherwise we'll talk to you on Friday for Friday fundamentals. I hope 2020 is off to an amazing start for you and I'll talk to you soon.